everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. The book of Zechariah chapter 12. We'll just start in verse 1. Before we get into that, uh, two Saturdays ago, I believe, somewhere around that time, uh, last Sunday I finished our discussion on church lies, and the Saturday before last Sunday, or, or sometime around that weekend, from my understanding, is when a terror organization called Hamas ran into Israel, and they attacked and, and brutally murdered, assaulted, and, and a bunch of other things, Israeli civilians. Uh, they did not attack an Israeli military base. They didn't attack anything that had uh, weaponry or anything of the sort. It was merely an attack by terrorists looking to brutalize the people of Israel. Why am I bringing that up? The conversation around Israel is not a political one. It's not, it has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with personal beliefs. It has nothing to do with, with any of the things that it has become nowadays. The reality is, is that according to the Bible, Israel is and still is the chosen people of God. Now, I'm going to go through a lot of things today, a lot of biblical references and history, and to the best of my ability in doing this, we will understand why it is so important to us as Christians that we honor Israel, that it is thankfully something the United States has decided to continue to stand with them. I will say that after I found out about this attack on Monday, I sat there waiting to find out what our current president would say, and I don't say that as anything against him, just any time something awful or atrocious happens to the country of Israel, my next question is, what's the United States going to do? The reason I wonder that is because right before we get to the end of everything, before everything is done and over with, it says that all nations of the world will align their armies against Israel. And I breathed a very heavy sigh of relief when I heard our current president go ahead and threaten anybody who would try and take advantage of the calamity Israel is going through. He sent a warship over to the closest coast in that area as a show of force, and I was very excited about that. That has nothing to do with whether I like him or whether I don't like him. If you don't like him, fine. He honored Israel. If you don't like Donald Trump, fine. He honored Israel. And I was very excited that both of those things, and I would submit to you, and hopefully by the end, one of the only reasons... Now, with all the awful things the United States does nowadays, 40 million a year aborted, celebrating that boys can become girls, girls can become boys, having the idea that it is a moral good that a woman would be able to take the life of a little baby inside her womb, and that is not to shame anybody. I understand that things have happened in our past. You need to understand that God is still filled with love and grace for you. But our country has decided to align with some of the most heinous and unfortunate things against God. To the point that we've begun to take his name in vain, saying that God would consider it a good thing. That a woman would have the opportunity to abort a child. That God would consider it a good thing. That parents would affirm a confusing identity to their children. That parents would consider it a moral good to teach their children that there's no such thing as right and wrong. Rather, it is what is ever appropriate for how you feel. I consider that the only reason the United States still enjoys the blessings that we receive in this country from God is because we have yet to turn our back on Israel. 
And so simply let's go ahead and look at our future for just a moment. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem, that is Israel, a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut into pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it in that day. I will strike every horse with confusion, its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, strike every house of the peoples with blindness. The governors of Judah will say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, that day oftentimes in the Bible refers to prophecy referring to the finality of the end of days. I understand that many people have said we are about at the end of days. I understand they say we are just about at the tribulation or maybe we're already in it. If you don't understand what that is, I will give you a brief synopsis of it. I leave it to you to begin to ask your own questions and to begin to study the end times. But it is simply this. As we get towards the end, the world begins to turn away more and more from God. The Bible says that there will be a great falling away, meaning more people will deny God, but that there will also be a great revival, meaning that the more people will come to God. There will be no more of this in-between. There will be no more of this, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe all those things the Bible says. Well, I think Jesus is a good person, and that makes me a good person, and I'll, that's why I'll be in heaven. No, the Bible says that when we get to the end of this thing, that there will be no more middle ground. You will either love God or you will hate God. You will either honor Jesus, his son, the Messiah, who came down from glory and died on behalf for all men, or you will revile him as the most despicable of all time. That is basically the end of days. And during that time, one of the signs that we are finally just about to either enter into it or are at it is that every single nation, every army will look at Israel and say it's time to wipe them off the face of the earth. In that day when all nations align their armies against Israel. I was very excited when I heard that speech finally and our president said, don't go messing with them because if you do, it will not go the way you expect. You will find a show of force at your doorstep, a threat of violence against anyone that would dare come and touch Israel as Israel was dealing with the terrorist organization Hamas. And then I felt even better when I found out that it was a total of five nations that publicly put that out and stood together. I know that the UK was one of them, the France was another one of them, the United States, and there were two other countries. I I don't remember but they said don't touch Israel and so on that basis alone I know we are not quite at the end we're pretty close I think we're pretty close but we're not at the end but make no mistake the future of the United States is bound up in one verse in that day when all nations I know a lot of people have misunderstood things. I know a lot of people had said things about the end time. In fact, for a long time, during about the 70s, 80s, 90s, and I don't know if this idea still persists, but people have said that the U.S. has a big role to play in the end times. Keep something in mind. If the United States has any role to play in the end times, it is only in two things, and I hope it's only in one thing. In the first, it will be that our army decides to turn against Israel. We'll finally have decided to turn our back, and God will ruin this country. 
That is what the Bible promises. Every country of the world will turn itself against Israel, and as they do in their attempt to come against Israel, they will shatter themselves into pieces for daring to attack the people of God. The only other place that the United States can possibly have to play in the end of times on the world stage is a very terrible one because really, what does our country look like that is pretty close to back in Bible times? We look a lot like Babylon. You remember Babylon? Babylon was this giant superpower of the world. They had dominated the entirety of the world into absolute submission. They had taken hold of everything and they had amassed great riches. And under Babylon's rule, the entire world prospered. The entire world reaped the benefits of Babylon being the absolute superpower of the world. And then you go into the book of Revelation, and all of a sudden it starts talking about Babylon. What are we right now? We're the superpower of the world. Because of the rise of the United States, the entire world has benefited in economic prosperity, in the growth of all economies, because the United States stands at the precipice. That sounds a lot like Babylon. You want to know what Babylon was also known for? Drunkenness. Hedonism. Hedonism is do whatever makes you feel good. Don't just do a little bit do all of it whatever makes you feel good you make sure you give yourself to all of that if making you feel good is going to church you go ahead and do that but if making you feel good means getting out on saturday night and finding yourself in a drunken stupor or spending all of your time with every relationship you can hopping from person to person or whatever makes you feel good is every drug or every philosophy whatever it is go ahead and give yourself wholly to that hedonism is the idea of whatever makes you feel good at the moment make sure you get all of it as much as you can doesn't that sound a lot like the United States? There is no right or wrong. That might be true for you, but that's not my truth. Here's what's true for me, as though truth has somehow become something malleable in the Bible and Revelation. You understand that Babylon is simply a whore that God rips to pieces. I really hope we're not Babylon. <laughs> It's bad enough that all the armies of the world are going to align themselves against Israel. It's bad enough that the moment the United States decides as a mass to go ahead and say we are no longer for but against Israel. We no longer consider them an ally but an enemy. It is bad enough that in the day we do that, we have sentenced ourselves to death. And don't kid yourself, it's coming. God does not make promises or prophecies that do not come to pass. We will not have much longer until this country devolves into despising Israel as a whole. It's bad enough that that's going to happen, but God help us if also along with that we find out that we've just been Babylon all along waiting for God to come in and to rip us to pieces. Preacher, I did not come to church today to be encouraged like this. I apologize. This is important. Trust me, I promise you we'll get to the important part at the end. We'll get to the good part at the end. I promise you we'll get to the part that encourages at the end. But the reason I am illustrating this right now is because we are so close to when God decides that he's going to come back. Now, I don't know what close means, but I know that we're 2,000 years closer now than when he left 2,000 years ago. I know that it might be another 1,000 years before he decides to come back. I know that it might not be until another 2,000 years before he decides to come back. I under understand that, but it feels as though every day another country decides to add to itself hatred of Israel. It seems that every day another country adds itself to the list of countries that despise Israel, that actively come against Israel. Every day it seems like we get a little bit closer and a little bit closer, but we're not 
there yet. And so what does that mean for us? Well, while we've got some time, let's go ahead and enjoy some of the blessings that God promised to us when it comes to Israel. And I make this statement now, and I will justify it throughout the rest and what it means to us. Israel has always and is still now and has not been replaced as the chosen people of God. Non-negotiable. Now, if you want to have a discussion about it, if you'd like to come to my office, if you'd like to come to my house, whatever it is, if you'd like to get into this, I am more than happy to do this. I am more than happy to go back and forth. But right now, I'm preaching and not discussing. Israel is and will always be the chosen people of God, non-negotiable. Preacher, how do you know that? Because God started this thing out back in the book of Genesis when he met Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. And then he says this, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Now, preacher, I thought we were all Abraham's son. In fact, it even says that in the book of Hebrews. By faith, we are Abraham's sons. I understand that Jesus came. I understand we live in the New Testament. But keep in mind that we don't get to the New Testament without the Old Testament. So it at least has a little bit of value to us right now. Abraham, I'm calling you. And I want you to go where I'll show you. And I will bless those that bless you. And I will curse those that curse you. Now, we know Abraham had two sons, didn't he? He had Isaac. He had Ishmael. Two sons. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you a great nation. Sarah gets impatient. Abraham, why don't you go ahead and sleep with my handmaiden, Hagar, and have a son. And through that, he will be my son, Sarah, my son as well. And then all of a sudden, Abraham goes ahead and listens to his wife, trying to honor his wife. And probably he got a little bit impatient for the promise as well. And honestly, let's think about this for a minute. Back then, when polygamy was a very common thing, and God maybe hadn't been as clear as we would have liked back then about it's one man and one woman. Woman, Abraham decides, looking at his culture, I guess this makes sense. I'll go ahead and sleep with my wife's slave so that she can have a son through her. And Ishmael is born. And man, Abraham loves that boy because it's his son. Ishmael was strong. Ishmael was powerful. Ishmael was wild. In fact, the Bible describes him like a Mustang. You want to know what a Mustang is? First of all, let's not talk about the car. Mustang is simply a generic term to talk about a wild horse. You ever seen a wild horse? You ever seen a healthy one? The way they run, it is though you can see every muscle and tendon flex as they sprint across the field. They are uncatchable. They are untenable. They are untamable. The difficulty in taming a wild horse is so beyond measure because almost the only way you can grab hold of a wild horse like that is to beat it into submission. They are untamable. And Ishmael was described as a wild horse. That's a pretty cool description to be given by the Bible, by the way. That is a powerful description. And Abraham loved this boy, and Ishmael loved his daddy, Abraham. They would go back and forth, and Abraham was probably so excited. I finally have a son. And even though it was Hagar's son, Sarah was probably excited. God has fulfilled his promise, and on and on. And then all of a sudden, God comes along and says, Abraham, you got impatient. That's not the son. Abraham, but it's my son, God. No, that's not the son. I said, Sarah will have a son 
I didn't say based on the culture around you that you could go ahead and make a workaround so that all of a sudden Sarah gets a son. I said, Sarah will be with child and she will have a son. You got impatient, Abraham, but I made a promise to you. And so I'm going to go ahead and follow through on that promises. Keep this in mind. God does not repent of his gifts or his calling. When he makes a promise, he will follow through on it. You wonder why we still have free will, even though our first decision against God was to eat a piece of fruit. Because once God gives a gift, he doesn't take it back. It might not work the same way if you're going ahead and rebelling against God because he's the only one who knows how the gift works the best way. And so you might have been given a gift or a talent or a calling from God and you're trying to make that thing work on your own outside of God and it sort of works. But without God's instruction on how it works in its fullness, that thing's not going to look as well, but he does not take it away. And so God comes through on his promise. Now Isaac is born. And man, Abraham's excited. And Sarah has a son. And they're so excited. And they're going back and forth. And now you've got Ishmael and Isaac. And Abraham thinks, this is wonderful. I thought I was going to have no sons. Now I've got two sons. I understand I made a mistake. But God didn't tell me anything necessarily bad about Ishmael. And now I've got Ishmael, a bonus son. And I've got Isaac, the son of promise. This is fantastic. And all of a sudden, you get to the book of Genesis chapter 21. Verse 8, and it says, Isaac came of age, which is about eight years old back then. He's a little boy. And it says, Ishmael began to pick on him. Now, that is a very nice term. That is a very kind term for what Ishmael was really doing. The words used there imply that Ishmael was maliciously bullying Isaac. That he would go out of his way to torment Isaac. That he would find ways to make Isaac miserable. It didn't matter too much before then because Ishmael was young, Isaac was young. It's just two little brothers fighting with each other. It happens all the time. Judah and Leo do that to each other all the time. Leo does something Judah doesn't like. Judah gets mad, screams at the top of his lungs. I have to go and play the referee. And I tell Leo, listen, Leo, you can't do that. Judah asks you to stop. And then Judah turns around and does the exact same thing he just got mad at Leo for. And now I've got to go back in Judah. You just got mad. And now I'm madder at Judah than I was at Leo because Judah just got Leo in trouble for doing something that Judah turned. They just were two little boys having fun, having at each other. You know how brothers are. They go back and forth. They butt heads. And in fact, they're boys. That's what boys do. Boys fight. Girls talk about each other behind their back. Boys fight and butt heads. Front on, butting heads, Isaac and Ishmael back and forth. And Abraham's just sitting back thinking, my boys, just loving each other as they're punching each other, pinching each other, stealing each other's toys, getting each other in trouble. Back, and Abraham's just so happy. But then all of a sudden, we see that Isaac comes of age. And Ishmael wasn't playing. Because Hagar said, this is my son. He's the firstborn. That means he gets everything. But Hagar knew that her son didn't get everything because it's the firstborn of the actual wife that gets everything. So the hatred that Hagar has for Sarah starts passing to Ishmael. And Ishmael starts despising Isaac and taking it out on him. And Sarah gets angry because her boy is being picked on. And I would be angry too. The problem is they're both of Abraham's son. So Sarah goes and says, get rid of that boy of my slave now because I'm not going to share with him. Well, that's kind of a nice way to talk. It went from Abraham, sleep with my slave so I can have a son, a son to love. It went from that to get rid of that slave's child because I'm not going to. You want to talk about a generational curse being started right then and there with favoritism? You wonder why Jacob and Esau had such a problem with favoritism because the way Sarah went about it showed right then and there that there is a favorite child and there's a not favorite child. But that's a sermon for another time. But she goes in in violence. Get rid of him. And the problem is, is even though she went about it the wrong way, it was still the right thing to do. 
So Abraham, in a broken heart, doesn't know what to do. God comes to him and says, Abraham, listen, I promised you that your son would be a great nation. Ishmael's not the child of promise that I made that promise about, but because he's your son and because you love him, I'll give him that portion of the promise. I will give him the portion of the promise that makes him a great nation, but it is through Isaac that I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. You will be my people. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. Preacher, what does this have to do with now? Ishmael has always hated Isaac. He's never wanted any part of him. He's wanted him removed from the equation because Ishmael sees Isaac as a threat to the blessing. Ishmael says, I was the first one here, not Isaac. I'm the one that is dad's favorite. I'm the one that should get everything from dad. I'm the child of promise, not Isaac. And Abraham has to make the decision then and there. Even though he made a mistake and got ahead of the promise of God, he now has to honor the promise of God and send Ishmael and Hagar away. Hagar on the brink of death. God comes to Hagar because Keep something in mind. Hagar hasn't sinned right now. She hasn't done anything wrong. That boy, I understand that she was probably reviling Sarah, and that is a sin. But when it comes down to it, the difference between her and Sarah is very minuscule besides the fact of their names. And Hagar is going out with her son, and she doesn't know what to do. She's been deserted by her family, and God comes to her and provides an oasis for her. See, keep something in mind. Just because God didn't make Ishmael the son of promise does not mean that God was just going to execute him then and there. God does not punish a sin that does not exist. You ever heard this argument? Let's go back in time and kill Hitler before he was old enough to do anything. You can't do that. That's immoral. You want to know why? It doesn't matter that you know what he's going to do in the future. You cannot punish him for something that has not happened yet. You cannot execute a child, Adolf Hitler, in view of what he will be as an adult because then you are executing a child who has done no wrong despite there is wrong coming down the line. So God does not punish Ishmael for what his nation will become. But Ishmael has always hated Isaac. Because Isaac gets the promise and Ishmael doesn't. Isaac got to stay in the house of Abraham and Ishmael was sent away. You want to know who Ishmael is today? Iran. Egypt. Iraq. You want to know how I know? Hagar was an Egyptian. Hagar was a descendant of Egypt. Now you've got Egypt. There's where Ishmael comes from. And then you've got Abraham, the originator. And now all of a sudden you have Iran, Iraq. You have all of the... Isn't it interesting that every country that directly surrounds Israel despises it? And they can't give you any other reason than it's our land. That's our land. It's not their land. It's, our, it's the same argument Abraham created back when he got ahead the promise of God and made Ishmael before he made Isaac. It is still the same conflict today as it was back when God first made the promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And there is nowhere where Ishmael will stop hating Isaac. Now that does not mean they are irredeemable. Please do not misunderstand. Jesus Christ died for one and died for all. Ishmael is still redeemable and God does not ignore the rest of everything just because he has said Israel is my chosen people preacher you haven't told us how Israel is you've told us how Abraham is and we're Abraham's sons and we're Abraham's daughters stick with me a little bit before I get to that keep something in mind just because God chooses a people just because God says you will be my special people holy unto me does not mean that he rejects the rest of the world I like Isaiah Isaiah's got some of my favorite prophecies in it. Isaiah's got some of the most beautiful poetic thing. Outside of Psalms, I think Isaiah has some of the best ways 
of phrasing words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the glory of God was surrounding the earth. And I, around the throne, I saw six angels with six wings, and they were circling the throne. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew around the throne, screaming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled of his glory. And I looked upon him, and I said, Woe is me, for I am an unclean man filled around unclean people with unclean lips. And before I died, God sent one of the seraphims circling around the throne, told him to take a coal and come and sanctify my lips. If there has ever been such a beautiful explanation of how God will stop the natural order of creation to take care of one of his children, it's in Isaiah. Isaiah has some of the most beautiful prose and poetry when God is communicating with his people. And in the book of Isaiah chapter 19, verse 24, God writes these words. In those days, Israel will be a party of three. Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. Israel, my inheritance. Preacher, what does that have to do with anything? That's just a very nice way where God's talking about other countries. Keep something in mind. Isaiah is born way after the Exodus. You remember that. We've got those nice old videos. I think it was James Earl Jones. Or no, it wasn't James Earl Jones. It was Yul Brenner. That's who it was. Back in the book, uh, in the movie, The Exodus, where he's over there and they're building all the pyramids in Egypt and the Israelis are building all the pyramids. I don't know if that's how they were built, but it's a really nice idea where you've got him coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he makes those great words. So let it be written. So let it be done. I love that scene in that movie. But Isaiah is not around that time. Isaiah is hundreds of years after that has happened, which means he remembers that Egypt was, were the ones that decided to enslave Israel. Egypt were the ones that decided to beat Israel. Egypt was the nation that decided they would crush Israel. Egypt was the first nation to raise its whip, its sword, its chariots, its swords, and its spears against Israel. Israel, and now we have God coming in saying, Egypt, my people. Wait a minute, God. They're the ones that tried to kill us. They're the ones that the only reason they decided to enslave us is because we were getting too big in the family. They didn't like that we were really successful in everything we did. And so out of jealousy, they took over us and subdued us. And you have the audacity, God, to say that Egypt is your people. Egypt, my people. Assyria my handiwork. What's handiwork? Handiwork is when you do something that you're so proud of that you're not just going to go ahead and keep it in a glass case. You're going to take that thing out and you're going to parade it around obnoxiously for everyone to see it. Kind of like when that parent comes up to you and they start bragging about their son. Perfectly fine son. Perfectly lovely son. But he got 100 on his math test. What did your son get on their math test? 99? That's cute. My son got 100. Perfection. My son got 100 on his first math test. And it's not even normal math like all the other kindergartners are learning right now. No, my son is learning multiplication right now. That's my son. And here's his hand. You ever seen someone that obnoxious and you're just like, listen, I get you're proud, but please go away. I can't handle your level of extra right now. And you just look at that. God says about Syria, this is my handiwork. Have you seen my children, Assyria? Have you seen how wonderful, now Assyria is not Israel, and keep something in mind. You want to know what Assyria was? Let's have a little fun real fast. What was the capital of Assyria? Anybody? We've, Dama, Damascus is a good one, but not quite. Damascus is right around there, but Damascus was just as bad. Anybody remember someone named Jonah? You remember that story as a kid? Nineveh. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I'm getting ready to destroy them. 
I'm going to bring absolute calamity on Nineveh. Jonah, I want you to go and preach to Nineveh so that I don't bring my judgment upon them. I want you to give them an opportunity to repent, Jonah. I want you to give them my mercy. And you want to know what Jonah says? The Bible puts it nicely. Jonah curses God and says, I'm out. Now, Jonah's a prophet. Jonah has a book of the Bible named after him. You get a book of the Bible named after you, you're a pretty good person. Ruth, I like Ruth. Esther, Esther was impressive, wasn't she? Daniel, I like Daniel. Daniel and the lions. And all these people who honored God, who loved God, who gave everything to God. And now we've got Jonah who basically goes ahead and says, God, I got some fingers for you. Guess which one I'm holding up? says, I'll go somewhere else. Jonah, go and save Nineveh. No, they can burn. You want to know why Jonah was willing to let Nineveh burn? You want to know why Jonah, at the very end of the book of Jonah, as he's sitting there looking at Nineveh, he's angry at God. And God comes to him and says, why are you angry? He said, I wanted you to destroy them. I'm angry they decided to repent, God. I preached your word like you told me to, God. I told them that you love them, that you wanted them to repent, but that if they didn't repent, you were going to destroy them with fire from heaven. But God, I wish they wouldn't have repented. And I sat my seat out here with a front row hoping you were going to destroy them. Jonah didn't stick around to see them escape with mercy. Jonah stuck around because he thought they were so hard, stiff-necked that they wouldn't repent. He was going to get to watch a fireworks show. You want to know why Jonah hated them so much? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. You want to know what the big deal about Syria is? Assyria was the blade that God decided to use as his judgment when Israel decided to start practicing abortions. Assyria was the blade of God's judgment when Israel decided to start worshiping other gods. Assyria was the blade of God's judgment that came in and shattered the kingdom of Israel. The Israeli captivity does not happen without Assyria. Assyria was the bane of existence. Assyria was the reason that the Judeans and the Israelis could not live in their own home. Assyria was the very reason that Israel could not enter into their temple and worship God anymore. Assyria was the entire reason that Israel did not reside in the land promised to them by God through Abraham where they could enjoy a relationship with God. No wonder Jonah wanted Nineveh dead. He said, start with Nineveh, and when you're done, burn the rest of it, God. And then God comes along in the book of Isaiah and says, Assyria, my handy, I will parade my child around as though they are the greatest ever. He doesn't just list Israel in there. Egypt, the enslavers. Assyria, the dominators. And then God has the audacity to say, there will come a day where I will bring all of mine back to me. And Egypt will be my people. Assyria will be my hand. Listen, just because God chooses a people does not mean he ignores the rest. The aspect of choosing is not one of, well, I'm going to pick this and nobody gets anything. The aspect of choosing is when God says, I'll start from here so that the rest can enjoy. So Ishmael can still be redeemed. But the promise was never made to Ishmael. 
And let's go even a little further. A lot of people say, okay, well, the promise wasn't made to Ishmael. That's fine. Let's go ahead. And then you have Islam come in and say, no, we're the child of promise. We're the ones that go ahead and get to bring this to the world. It's not Isaac. And back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You want to know why that whole thing falls apart? Because Israel has Jehovah and Islam has Allah. And they're not the same God. I know people try and make the argument, well, it's just a different name for the same God. That's all it is. It's like when I say God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, it's all God. No, they are not. You have Jehovah and you have Allah. You have Jehovah, the God of the Jews and the God of all creation, the God who sits unopposed, unchallenged on the throne for all eternity. And then you have Allah, a poser to the throne, one who is a pretender, the position of almighty God. Here's the difference between Allah and Jehovah. I understand that if you go back into the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of bloodshed, a lot of it commanded by God. But keep something in mind. The tone of the entirety of the Bible from Jehovah is that he demands redemption through either relationship or rejection at the foot of a cross. When it comes to Jehovah, he leads you to the foot of a cross where he sacrificed his own son on my behalf and your behalf and says, accept me or reject me. That is not a threat of violence. That is not a threat that you will die. It is simply a matter of fact. Will you be with me or will you leave me? We get the conversation of hell so confused. We say, well, God will judge you and sentence you to hell. No, we choose to be separate from God. God says, will you accept my son or will you reject him? At the feet of a cross where blood is running, not my blood, not your blood, but the blood of a savior who came and died on my behalf, Jehovah says, will you accept my son or will you reject him? Here's the difference. Allah says, at the tip of a blade, your blood will be spilled. Convert or die. In both cases, blood is being spilled. In Allah's case, your blood is spilled if you don't convert. In Jehovah's case, his blood was spilled so that I have an opportunity to be with him. It's not the same God. It's not just a different name for the same God. It's not that they're the same Bible just written from different perspectives. No, you have the Bible that is in worship of Jehovah that speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh incarnate in the New Testament. And you have the Quran, which is filled with nothing but bloodshed. I understand there's a lot of nice poetry in the Quran. I understand there's a lot of nice prose. I understand there's a lot of nice peaceful things in the Quran. That's fine. But it is nothing more than a book that is used to propagate doctrine and dogma and bigotry for the purpose of bloodshed. I make no arguments about that and I make no words mixing it up or making any excuses from it. And again, if you want to have a discussion, that's fine. But right now it's one and about 50, so I can't go ahead and discuss. All I can do is preach. Let's get some coffee sometime or some tea sometime and we'll discuss and I'll show you that there's a God that loves you named Jehovah and there's a devil that despises you named Allah. One wants your better, one wants your destruction. promise to Abraham. The promise echoed again in the book of Exodus chapter 6 verse 7 where God is talking to Moses and says go and set my people free and I will be their God and they will be my people a holy nation sanctified unto me set apart. Preacher all that's Old Testament. You're right all of it is Old Testament. We're living in the New Testament. You're right we are living in the New Testament. Preacher Jesus came and when he came it was once and for all. You are correct it was once and for all but keep something in mind in the New Testament it says for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ I believe it is the book of Romans chapter 11 verse 29 where Paul says for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power unto salvation first for the Jew first 
For the Jew, you want to know what the Jews are? The Israelis. You want to know what the Israelis are? All those people we've just been talking about in the Old Testament. New Testament words, by the way. New Testament words. The power of God unto salvation first for the Jew. Then for the Greek. By the way, if you're not a Jew, you're a Greek. So that, that's us. That's, that's the... It's not God is picking favorites. It's God says, I'm going to start where I started so that it gets out to everything else. Well, preacher, the only thing that gets you into heaven, the only thing that gives you a relationship with God, the only thing that redeems you, the only qualification, the only thing that is the subject or the discussion for whether or not you are saved or not saved, whether you are dead in sin or trespasses or alive in Christ, there is one thing, and it's the blood of Jesus. You are correct. Israel does not get a free pass into heaven if they reject Messiah. Israel does not get a free pass, but it does not negate their chosenness. It does not negate the promise of God where he says, I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. There has been a terrible doctrine floating around the United States in the doctrine that when you become a Christian, it's Christians that replace the Jews. That's not true at all. The Bible says that we were grafted in the vine. For those of you who are arborists or you like to garden, you understand what I'm saying when I say grafted. But let me explain to you for those of you who know nothing about trees or plants, myself included. I actually had to study this. I did not like it. I had to read things. You want to know what it is to graft something? Let me do a little bit of what I do know. Medical. And the only reason I know a little bit about medical is not because I'm a student of medicine, but because I have a wife who is a student of medicine who tries to keep me alive. That's it. You ever heard of a skin graft? Where part of the body is so destroyed that they go to a healthy part of the body and they slice away some of the healthy part of the body and they graft it, they weave it, they sew it, they attach it to the broken part of the body so that over time what ends up happening is the brokenness disappears and it looks as though it was never there. When the Bible says we were grafted into the vine, what it's talking about is an olive tree. You want to know what's really cool about olive trees? If one breaks and it splits... Normally that kills a tree, doesn't it? If we go out and we see a palm tree right now that's been split in half, that thing's dead. Got to cut it all the way down to the base, and maybe some life will come back out of whatever's left or before the split happens. You ever go out to an oak tree or a pine tree? If that thing is split, it is dead. Burn it, tear it up, turn it into lumber, tinder, something. Make use of it somehow. Olive trees, when those things get shattered, you know what you do? You go and find a random olive tree. And you healthfully take a branch off of it. And you go back to the broken olive tree. And you take that healthy branch and you place it into the area that's broken. And over time, what ends up happening is the healthy parts in the broken olive tree start working their way towards this new healthy branch that exists now in the broken area, and they begin to absorb into each other so that over the course of time, what ends up happening is the brokenness disappears completely, and you can no longer tell the difference between what the old olive tree was and the new olive tree was. Did you know that scholars argue that in the Garden of Gethsemane right now, they are the same olive trees Jesus prayed under when he was there? Because every time there's a break, you just go and graft it in. Every time there's something broken, you just go, every time there's a bad branch, you rip it off, you tear it off, and then you go and get a healthy branch from somewhere, and you graft it in. When 
Paul is talking about grafting in, what he's saying is Jesus is the base. And before we were a part of him, we were just out there wandering. But when we become saved, what Jesus ends up doing is he ends up grabbing us, even though we are nothing like him. And he slowly begins to graft us in so that over the course of time, what ends up happening is you can't tell the difference from where Jesus starts and I begin. That's the story of how Jesus brings us so close to him. And he begins to feed us nutrients as the base of the tree. That's why it says, if you abide in me, you will have life. Because the minute you cut a branch off from the root, it dies. But he says, I can take this thing and I can, I can graft it in. Preacher, what's that have to do with the Jews? Did you know that Jesus is a Jew? Did you know he was born a Jew? Did you know that when he started out, he was speaking almost exclusively to Jews? Did you know that the way he presents the entirety of the gospel starts out from the Old Testament when he gives you the basis? In fact, when he quotes those words in the New Testament, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the lame, to set the captive free, to open deaf ears, to open blind eyes. All of that was spoken from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus merely quotes the words and then follows it up with the new word of God by saying, Today, in your hearing, this verse is fulfilled. That's all he had. He says, it was spoken, now it's happening. It was promised, here's the promise coming to fruition. That's all he, everything that you want in the New Testament, you don't get unless you justify the Old Testament. Everything you want in the New Testament where God comes and says, I will place my heart in their hearts. I will place my spirit in their spirit. I will give them the ability to be my witnesses. I will give them the ability to have power. Not just power to go out and do amazing things, but power to live in such a way that they don't have to sin. That they're no longer obligated, that when chaos seems to be consuming their life, that when everything seems to be destroying around them, they're able to stand firm, not because they're a good person, not because they are able to do great things, but because I reside in the depths of their heart. All those things find their epicenter, their birth in the Old Testament. You don't get the new without the old. We are an error when we say Old Testament and New Testament because really it's just a single testament of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a Jew when he put on humanity. Fully man, fully God. He didn't put on part of man. He didn't put on part of God. He stayed 100% God. He stayed 100% man. And when he came to earth as a man, he came to earth as a Jew. You want to know why? Because God told his servant David a long time ago, David, because you have honored me in this way, there will never cease to be an heir of yours on the throne, which means Jesus is still a descendant of David. It means when he ascended back to heaven, he didn't give up his humanity. He just reclaimed all his glory that he had set aside for a time when he came to earth. So he still sits by the right hand of the Father as a descendant of David, eternally on the throne, ruling from heaven, forever a Jew. So if you remove the Jews, you remove the Savior. If you replace the Jews, you replace the Savior. So at the very end of all this, if you want to enjoy the blessings of God in their fullness, you cannot do it and curse Israel. Everything I've preached in this church, every point of peace that I've offered you, every point of hope that I've offered you, every point of rest that I've offered you, every point of redemption that I've offered you, every point of freedom from shame, every point that I've ever made talking about how much God loves you, the minute you remove the Jews, all the blessings are off the table because the minute you curse the people of God, you have brought 
cursing upon yourself. Not because God hates you, not because God despises you, but because a long time ago when God first started talking to Abraham and then affirmed in Isaac and then affirmed in Jacob and then affirmed in Moses that you will be my people and I will be your God, he said a contract. If they bless you, I'll bless them. If they curse you, I'll curse them. You want to know the best way to bring blessing and cursing in and out of your life? What are you going to do with the Israelites? Go back and listen to any of the sermons I've ever preached. Go back and listen to whatever sermon sticks out the most in your mind. Go back on Facebook and find whatever sermon touched you the most. Go back and find on our website, cfuli.com. Find the podcast. Ashley has started going ahead and posting those. Find those so you can listen. Whatever sermon I've ever preached that has stuck out to you the most, that has struck a chord in your heart the deepest, whatever sermon it was that brought you to the feet of God and saying, Lord, I am in need of your grace and mercy, whatever sermon it was that made you feel closer as though the full arms of God were wrapped around you, holding you and loving you, that sermon, outside the blood of Christ and the blessing of Israel, loses all value to you. Preacher, if I curse Israel, am I going to hell? No. The only thing that is a qualification for heaven is what did you do with my son? I'll see you in heaven. My question is, do you want to live in blessing or do you want to live in cursing while you live here in these short 50, 70, 90 years on earth? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Worship him and him alone. Jehovah, Yahweh, the great I am. And then Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who are you looking for? We are looking for the one named Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. The Redeemer of all mankind. The one who stepped down from glory and was willing to put on flesh. The one who said, I'll learn what it is to be hungry. I'll learn what it is to be lonely. I'll learn what it is to be so gripped by temptation that it feels as though the very breath of life is being ripped out of me. I'll understand to go what every single pain and heartache that my people must go through. Is a Jew. The Bible says that if he wasn't willing to spare his own, the Jews, meaning if they didn't believe on Jesus, if he wasn't willing to spare his own from disaster. What makes us think that just because we believed on him, that if we then reject him, he'll treat us any differently? He's leveled the playing field. Does that mean Israel gets to do whatever they want? No, it does not. You understand the only reason that Assyria came in and nearly destroyed Israel was because Israel rejected God. In fact, if you go to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, read from verse 13 and on. Solomon has just built the temple. It's finally constructed. God has actually come into the temple. And God says these words to Solomon. When I cause the land to have no rain, when I send locusts to devour all of your food, when I send sickness to ruin your people. Doesn't that sound a lot like Egypt right now? And he's talking to Israel. 
when I send those things. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then will I hear them and heal their land. That's the great part in the middle of there. But God does not give Israel a pass because even though verse 14 is so beautiful about how God will always redeem, verse 13 says, when you're experiencing these things, and then you get all the way down to verse 22, and God says, I will make you a byword. You want to know what a byword is? It's a swear. He says, you who are my chosen people, I will curse you so harshly that you will become nothing more than a swear in people's mouths. And when people ask, how did this nation that was so prosperous become so desolate? Everyone will say, because they forsook the Lord their God. Make no mistake, God's always about God. It's just that when I make sure I'm about what he's about, I suddenly get to enjoy his blessings. So even if Israel were ever to do something that is sinful, God says, let him handle the judgment. My job is to bless them. That does not mean I green light their sin. That does not mean I support if they ever do something vile. But it does mean, Lord, these are your chosen people. Help me to bless them. I feel compelled to pray what little bit of Hebrew I do know as a blessing unto God and then to pray for the people of Israel as they go through such a terrible time and then to bless us. Baruch Adonai. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. You, O Lord Jehovah, are the only one worthy of glory and honor and praise. And in this house today, we come to honor you, to worship you, to glorify you, to serve you. And Lord, we have seen and heard of the terror that has come to your people, Israel. Father, all loss of life is devastating. But may you be vengeance upon the enemies of Israel that wish to destroy your people. May you go before Israel like a fire and consume their enemies. May you guard your daughter Jerusalem. May you bring comfort and peace to the mothers who are weeping over their lost children. May their sorrow be turned to joy. May their weeping be, be turned to celebration. But God, let your daughter Jerusalem be held in your arms. And Lord, we come to you by the blood of your son, Jesus. We place our faith, our hope, our trust in his death and his resurrection, in his ascension and his coming. Were it not for the blood of your son, all of us would still be drifting away with no hope in this chaotic and painful and merciless world. 
Lord, may your Holy Spirit go before us today. May we enjoy the blessings promised to us by faith through Abraham, that everywhere we lay our foot shall be blessed. Let us be a blessing to those around us. And Holy Spirit, may you guard our coming and going. Now and forevermore. In your name. Amen.